I'm Haley and Charlie's Nacho Guy. Welcome to Snub Dub. take this episode to uh record an episode alone um this is my podcast this is my show um and you all are here to see me and i have to remind myself of that every once in a while um this episode is going to get a little heavy uh i know because when i'm alone and i'm talking to myself and i'm recording that just tends to be the way that my mind works um i have a lot in me (laughs) and uh it tends to come out when there's no other stimuli. So, uh, just a word of warning: um, this is going to be a little bit heavy. Um, and if you're not in the mood for heavy, I mean, I'll make it funny. I, I I'm a funny lady. I, I could do I do funny the voice. Anyway, <laughs> I get very uncomfortable recording on my own, which is funny because you know, like I do all these podcasts with all these people, and I'm I'm fine performing with other people. But as soon as I'm on my own, all of a sudden, I feel like I have nothing of value um, to present. And I, I feel like I'm staggering and waiting for something to present itself. And, well, I've jumped right into the deep end. I had an idea for this episode uh, being... I've never been upfront with all of you about who I am and my story. Um, I have... You know, I've I've been alive for 24 years <laughs> at this point, um, and coming up on 25 actually. Well, I guess supposed 26, but whatever. Um, well, no, 20. Uh, math. Anyway, I I I've never. I don't really lay out my story a lot because I don't feel like people are interested. But um, I don't know. I was talking with uh, Tom, one of our roommates, earlier, and I got thinking about like you know. People were asking him to do a draw my life, and I don't think <laughs> anybody wants to see a draw my life, but I feel like, where am I even going with this? I, I'm i worried that no one cares. <laughs> I'm really worried. Three minutes in, and I'm floundering. Um, okay, I'm going to tell my story. I feel like somebody out there might appreciate it, and I have to believe that I have something of value to give. So, here goes. Um, I was born, uh, assigned male at birth, um, as a lot of you know, I'm trans, I, I identify as trans binary, but we'll get to that part, it's a little bit of a spoiler, um, I was born assigned male at birth, um, uh, my dead name, uh, was Andrew James Stewart, um, I don't often say that out loud, I don't say it to other people, and right now recording it. Uh, it feels like I'm alone, although I know when I hear it out loud um, and I hear other people, you know, I'm sure no one's going to use it, but knowing other people are listening to it makes me uncomfortable, but I wanted to share it because I want to be honest. Um, that part of my life is a part of my life, regardless. Um, I don't I don't subscribe to the notion of erasing my past. Um, to become someone else. I feel like I am a whole person and all of my experiences have led up to who I am. And so to erase that little boy is to erase a part of myself who I have, who, who's, that, that, that's built me the way I am. Anyway, this is going to be rambly, folks, so buckle up. I was born uh, into a fairly well-off family, a uh, wealthy family. Um, we're not the richest of the rich, but we are very wealthy. Um, we had, you know, multiple cars and, um, you know, a big house and a swimming pool and, 
video games and go see the movies and um, we we were well taken care of. We never wanted for anything and um, we sure as shit didn't need for anything. Um, my brother and I were always fed um, and my parents were very good to us. We were never beaten. We were never, uh, you know, physically abused in any way. Um, but uh, my dad had a uh, mean streak to him um, and my dad grew up in a very toxic household um, and so he, that kind of attitude, that toxic masculinity kind of leached its way into my upbringing and my brother's upbringing and my mother's relationship and over the years um, their relationship deteriorated and like a lot of relationships uh, of parents of millennials uh, they wound up getting divorced. Um, I don't know you know, uh, most of my, most of my friends' parents are divorced. Um, I don't know a lot of people of that generation that stayed together. Um, I see statistics that say it's more than half, and I don't believe that personally. But um, yeah, my parents got divorced, um, and it was partially because my dad was, um, you know, had a mean streak to him. Um, he never laid a hand on any of us. Um, but, you know, he was he was an angry guy. Um, and my mom uh, is gay. My mom is a lesbian. Um, and she was dealing with that um, revelation at the same time as this whole thing was going down. And lo and behold, they wound up getting divorced. At this time, you know, around nine, ten years old, um, you know, I had been growing up. And a lot of my experiences growing up made me feel out of place. I always felt uneasy when split into gender groups in school. I have distinct memories of being a kid and thinking, you know, why, when they say boys over here, girls over here, why am I being put with the boys? That makes me feel weird. Um, there was this, <laughs> there was, I don't know if any of you remember the rhyme from back in the day of it's, um, uh, it depends on what gender you're assigned in the moment, uh, which one you hear. But for me, as a signed male at birth, I heard um, girls go to Jupiter to get more stupider. Boys go to college to get more knowledge. And I said that to a girl at school, and she went to a teacher, and then the teacher got mad at me uh, because she said, uh, you should respect little girls. You know, you're a little boy. You shouldn't think that you're better than little girls because you're a little boy. And being put on the spot like that made me wicked uncomfortable, and I had no idea why. Um... I remember distinctly, you know, watching girls' cartoons growing up and uh, feeling ashamed of that, people making fun of me for it. And I also, my mom told me uh, there were multiple times when I would complain that the girls had better commercials than the boys did um, and how I always wanted to be Hercules because Hercules was allowed to have long hair, um, <laughs> which is adorable. But, um, yeah, around nine or 10, I remember I was, uh, watching Mulan, which is the beginning of a lot of trans stories. <laughs> I was watching Mulan and it was the intro sequence, not the intro sequence, but the begin the early sequence where she's getting like all made over. And it's funny cause it's, it's supposedly like, it's, it's supposed to be about the oppression of like feminine expectations on women at this time in China. But I was like, I want to get a makeover. <laughs> and um, yeah. And after that, I, I watched that sequence. My brother and I were watching it on VHS. And I um, I watched it and I went straight to my mom. I don't know what possessed me um, to have the pure guts to go up to my mom and say, can I play with your makeup? And she let me do it. She was just like, sure. And she like set out some makeup and I was like, let me know when dad comes home. So I know, um, to like get in the shower and wash this off. And like, I did it. And God, I, I remember feeling so alien and so scared and so right. And so happy. And like all of these emotions all at once, looking at myself with the makeup, just crudely splattered all over my face. <clears throat> I used just like fingers and, you know, lipstick was just running all around my mouth, but I, I felt like a girl and it was really eye-opening. I did that in secret for years. 
um, two years to be precise. Um, two years to be precise. Um, I was sneaking clothes from my mom and makeup, and I thought I was being very, very sneaky. I would do it behind closed doors. I would lock myself in the bathroom. I would turn the shower on, waste so much water, pretending I was just taking a very long shower when in actuality I was putting on makeup and looking at myself in the mirror and fantasizing and just wondering and, and, and hoping. And it got bad. You know, it got bad for me real quick. I thought I would have... I thought it was just a... Uh, a little thing I did. I thought it was a weird quirk. I thought it was a weird habit. I thought I could stop and then I, I would go right back to it. Um, I was so ashamed of it, but I, I liked it so much. And I wound up... And here's the thing, y'all. I, I These days, I can't stress this enough. These days, there are a lot of resources out there. And I'm so, 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 so grateful for all these resources um, that are available to young trans people, that there's groups on Tumblr and Reddit and, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And like, there's communities of people, you know, on even right here on YouTube or, or podcasts and all sorts of things. There are communities of people that are ready to go and to help a young trans person identify themselves as trans. I didn't know the word transgender. I didn't know the word transsexual. I didn't know the word, I didn't know trans. I didn't know queer. I didn't know non-binary wasn't even a blip on my radar. Um, you know, all I knew was gay, straight, lesbian, bi. Um, and I had heard the term cross-dresser before. And I'd also heard the term transvestite before, but I'd never heard the term transgender. Um, so I wound up looking online and found a lot of dubious resources, uh, a lot of pornography and a lot of fetishization of, you know, of, of trans women. Um, and that was very damaging to me as a young, as a young, uh, trans person trying to find some information online. Um, I found the term transsexual, which was the PC term back then. Um, I found the term transsexual. And I found several, um, no, sorry, not several, two, two documentaries on the Discovery Health Channel. One was called Sex Change and one was called Switching Sexes. And um, I'm sure you can find them. They're archaic as hell and really outdated. Um, and they're all about passing and like, you know, all these things about like, you know, abandoning your life and all this. Again, it's very toxic stuff to hear, but it was it was seen as a sort of taboo thing to make a documentary about on the discovery health health channel for soccer moms to watch you know at night when they've put their kids to bed and their husbands are like off doing whatever the hell like it was just some sort of weird curiosity to be um interested in so the i watched these documentaries multiple times i i could have recorded them we had tivo at the time um <laughs> that's what DVR was, the shorthand was at the time. We had DirecTV, TiVo, it's the early DVR. And I could have recorded them, but I did not want people, it was one TV with the DVR, and I did not want someone to find it and be like, what the hell is this about? Um, so I would, <laughs> I would write down the days and times it would happen. I would go through the TV guide, and I would look for, um, I would look for when it would pop up again. And I would write down the date and save the date. And I would remember it. I would remember the date and time. And um, one of the dates and times was uh, St. Patrick's Day of uh, 2000 and what would it have been? Seven? Yeah. St. Patrick's Day of 2007. So I would have been 13, 14. No. Couldn't have been. Had to have been? 13, 12 or 13, huh, math is hard, I was born in 1993, 2007, 14, would have been 14 later that year, was 13, got it, figured it out, thanks for bearing with me, y'all, um, <clears throat> and I watched it that night, and my mom was having a party in the other, you know, in the other room, and I watched it, like, root the volume way quiet, real close to the TV, so no one would find me, switching the channel every time, somebody would come by 
and uh, I finished watching it. And then as everyone left, I, my mom was saying goodnight to me and I w- walked up to her and I said, hey, can I talk to you? Um, and she said, sure. And I said, I have to tell you something. I don't know what fucking possessed me to say I have to tell you something because at that point you can't back down from your mom. You can't be like, well, I love you. And she'll be like, that's not what you want to say. You can't be like, I have to tell you something. I had a great sandwich the other day and it really set, it really set my mood for the week and I just wanted to say thanks for, like, no. The only thing that can follow that is a very serious thing and if you don't follow it with a serious thing she's going to be real curious so i said i have to tell you something and she said what and i i couldn't tell her <laughs> i couldn't say it and I, had, I made her guess and her first guess was are you gay and i said kind of <laughs> and she said is it about the makeup and the clothes you've been stealing from me and i realized she had let me do that all that while without blowing up my spot she let me do it and feel like i was getting away with it so that i didn't feel embarrassed <sighs> it was one of the most amazing things she's ever done for me um i never think i i i've thanked her for that but i, I don't thank her enough for that um and she accepted me she accepted me to a point she didn't reject me outright but she was dubious to trust the word of 13 year old on something so serious um now that was damaging but i don't blame her for it um there's a resentment i have but i don't blame her for it um she she was doing the best she could with the skills she had and i don't blame her for it um but it hurt it hurt being told you're wrong. It hurt being told you're you you. There's no way you can know. Um, being invalidated like that. I I came out to some friends. Um, my dad, who didn't take it super well, uh, he said, um, you know, it's mutilation, and I won't I won't uh, reject you outright, but I'm not going to help you in any way. Um. And he broke that promise eventually, um, but he stood by it for a good long while. He said, I'm not going to help you in this in any way. I don't want this to happen, and you don't have my support. So that was what I had to live with for that. Um, I came out to my brother, and the way I came out to my brother was I walked out of the shower with a towel around my waist, and I went up to him and I said, hey, Rob, um, I have something I have to tell you. And he said, what? And I said, uh, I think that I'm, I think I'm a transsexual. I, I, I want, I want to be a girl. And he went, cool, pull up your towel. <laughs> I don't want to see your tits. And I was like, awesome. Thanks for the support. Um, which he's always been supportive, but I, that still stands as the best coming out story I've ever had. Um, yeah. So that's uh that was me coming out and i came out and i i you know again went back and forth in my head i you know word got out in my middle school that um i was trans i had told a couple of friends and word got out in my you know public school system and i was fortunate enough to be able to switch school systems into a private school and have a fresh start um because I was I was terrified to be out like that, to have been outed like that. I still haven't really looked back. There are a lot of people from public school that I grew up with that I n- never talked to. I, I've never talked to them again. Um, there are a couple people who have drifted back into my life in one way or another, and it's always terrifying. But yeah, I wound up going to high school, and I met some really cool friends, and I wound up falling into the punk scene because punks were, you know, you were allowed to wear skinny jeans and makeup and no matter what your gender was. So I was all about that life. Um, and so I, I found, I started a punk band. Um, I can put a link in the description of this video. Um, and, uh, I'll put a clip up now of, uh, the band. We were, uh, decidedly fucking awesome. 
uh, and probably the best band I'll ever have been in. I mean, we're, we were hacks, but we lived the punk dream. We got together, we made music for uh, four years, we made an album's worth of music, um, or no, it was three years. We were together for three and a half years, made an album's worth of music, uh, never recorded a full album, and broke up. It was the punk rock dream. And our last show was the best show we ever played. Uh, and it was in a basement, and only a select few people have ever heard of it. And the people who were there will remember that we fucking brought the house down, um, but we vanished after that, never to be seen again. And um, I would love to put the band back together, but you know what? Some things need to be left in the past. Um, but if you guys want to see it, all of that stuff is... Uh, the YouTube channel for the band is still up. Um, the ANFC... The American National Flag Commitment. But anyway, I fell into a punk scene, and the people and the friends I made in that scene started to expose me to certain things, namely drugs. Um, I started smoking cigarettes, drinking, um, and then weed uh, came into my life. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying this is not a drug PSA. This is not a, don't make the same mistakes I did. Don't do drugs. Don't do the pot. Um go ahead, make your mistakes. Some people are totally able to handle it, and I'm not one of those people. Um, I started smoking pot, and I found comfort in oblivion. I found a solace in being high. I felt as though, oh, this is what other people feel. And I did it because I wanted to escape. I did it because I wanted to escape. I did it because I thought if I got high enough, I could convince myself that either A, I was a girl already, or B, I didn't need to be a girl. Um, I had convinced myself of that. And in uh, in high school, and when I was 16 years old, I had gotten high a bunch, and it wasn't working. I was drinking. I was smoking. I was cutting myself. I self-harmed a lot. Um, through middle school into um, into high school, and uh, I had, you know, attempted suicide a couple of times. I was very depressed. I was unmedicated for a little while, but I was just getting onto antidepressants at this time. I was kind of seeing a therapist, but not really doing any work. Um, and I I went to my mom and I said, "Listen." I have to transition. And she was like, we'll cross that bridge when you're 18. And I said, I don't think I'll make it to 18. And I was honest. And it was manipulative. And it was a horrible thing to tell, to mo tell a mother. But I don't... The guilt I feel is for how I made her feel. But not because I manipulated her. I wasn't lying. If I didn't transition when I if I didn't start to transition when I started, I would have killed myself before I had reached 18. Um, that's just that was the reality of my my dysphoria. I hated my body. I still do a lot. Um, I don't think I'm pretty. I hate my voice. I think I. I still think I have too broad shoulders. I still think I'm too hairy in whatever places. I I think my chin is either too weak or too strong. My neck is too thick. Um, my eyes aren't big enough. They're too sunken in. My brow is too heavy. Um, you know, I don't think my boobs are big enough. I don't think my hips are wide enough. I don't think my thighs are thin enough. All All sorts of things. But back then it was... I can't be in this body because I was in the middle of adolescence. My body was only getting more and more masculine by the second. And I hated it. I hated it. I felt myself being poisoned every day from a, a source of, of illness that came from within me. And I couldn't live with that anymore. I couldn't. Some people can. And I don't know how. I don't know how. <sighs> I don't know how. More power to you. If you're living in that right now, I put my love out to you right now because I, I could, I could not, I was too weak. <laughs> I was too weak. 
A lot of people say I'm so strong for transitioning when I did, but it's I did it in truth because I I was too weak to go any further. But she said okay. So we started going to see a doctor, um, Dr. Christine McGinn, based out of the Papillon Center in, in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And she herself is trans, um, and she, you know, gave me a good deal of hope that not only could I transition and be beautiful, because she was beautiful, um, not only could I transition and be beautiful, but also I could transition and be successful. That was a huge lesson I learned from her. It was, it was really important for me to hear that. But we started talking to her, and she started giving us suggestions. I went, I had to get several other therapists. Um, I had been seeing two at this point, two whole therapists at this point. I'd met a whopping one other trans person in my life, um, and I had to go see a third because at that time, the gatekeeping policy, which I think is the same in certain places still, requires you get three uh, psychiatrist notes uh, certifying you as trans before you're able to take any medical steps. Um, so I got them. I got all three. Whew. And I, um, I had to uh, save my seed to preserve my chance at being a parent, a biological parent in the future. And that was a whole series of traumas. But, um, that was a whole thing, and I won't, I won't get it too much into detail, but that's a whole process. Um, and let's just say my, my progeny are currently on ice. Um, and then I fucking started. And I started the way a lot of trans women start, um, uh, which is with hormone blockers. I got onto spironolactone, which is actually a blood pressure medication that was originally designed... Uh, to alleviate blood pressure problems, but it had a, a weird ulcer, like alternate effect of blocking testosterone, and so they were like, well, fucking, we can't give this most men, but here's an option. <laughs> so um, I started taking that, and I started taking some other medicines, and um, I gradually started to feel myself transition, and it was incredible. And after, uh, I think, six or eight weeks of being on that, I got my first hormones, um, estrogen, estradiol. It was a cream. It was a topical cream that I rubbed onto my thighs and it absorbed through the skin. Um, and I, I cried the first time I put it on. I, I cried like a little baby. <laughs> it was the most incredible moment of my life. Well, at the time, <laughs> but, uh, it, it was, it was truly incredible. And I, I swear I, I felt myself become a girl that day, but it's, uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that way, kids. But, um, it, it definitely felt like a lot, but I started and did it twice a day and I was still in high school. I was, I believe 17 when I started my hormones. Um, and I was still a junior in high school. Um, and so it was the second semester of my junior year of high school. And I was not out <laughs> to the school. Um, and I wasn't ready to be out to the school, but I asked my school, hey, can I start dressing in the girls' dress code just casually? Like, not like in skirts and stuff. Like, can I just not wear a tie? Which is the boys' dress code. And if I didn't wear a tie, I would still be in girls' dress code. And they said, you can only dress in girls' dress code if you come out to the whole school in an assembly. And I was like, fuck you. I'm not going to do that for your own press release. Um, I'm not ready for that shit. And they were like, all right, then you have to stay in boys' dress code. And I was like, fine, fuck you. So I skirted around it in the best, <laughs> skirted around it in the best way I could. Um, but I managed to go, you know, I was developing breasts at the time. Um, and I started binding. I started binding uh, my breasts like a, like, you know, like a lot of trans men do. And um, so that's an interesting blip in my experience. I was binding my breasts to, um, to hide my development from my classmates so that I didn't have to worry about them um, finding out. So I did that 
for the better part of a year. Um, and uh, it was the second semester of my senior year of, college, of, of high school that uh, during morning meeting, which was sort of a morning assembly where students would gather and hear announcements from the teachers and from other students um, before going on with their day, I stood up because uh, it's sort of an open forum. I stood up, I stood in line, shaking like an absolute leaf, um, shaking like a leaf on a tree in autumn in the San Andreas Fault, <laughs> like just shake a laken. Um, and uh, shaking like a grandma making, shaking like a chicken leg in a brown paper bag full of spices in the hands of a grandma on the San Andreas Fault. Um, that's how much I was shaking. Um, coked up grandma. Yeah. So, uh, I, I went up and I, I had this whole speech about like, you know, as the president of the gay straight alliance, yada, yada, yada. I want people to know that, you know, people that are out. It's the most important thing. Harvey Milk believed that being out was the most powerful way to prove to allies that they could support people because it's hard. It's easy to vilify someone you don't know, and it's hard to vilify someone you do. And you know gay people, you know bi people, you know pan people, you know this, that, and the other thing. But it's hard to do that with trans people because none of you know a trans person. But I'm here to tell you that you do. I'm transgender. And then the room went dead fucking silent. And then I walked over and fucking, I, like... A few people started clapping, and then more people started clapping. And then I went, I was white as a ghost, and I went to sit down, and my friend, my best friend, my guitarist, Zach Klein, grabbed me by the shoulder, and he picked me up, and he said, no, no, you stand. And so I did. And the day went on as, new, as usual. People came up to me and said, that was really brave, that was this, that was that. I was terrified. <laughs> I was absolutely fucking terrified still for the rest of the day, for the rest of the year, really. Um, it was earth shattering to me, but I felt great because I got to do it in a way that the school didn't have a chance to call a reporter to make a big deal out of it for their own bullshit. So that was fun. I graduated from high school and I took a gap year. In that gap year, I was determined to get my uh, gender confirmation surgery. That's my story. It doesn't have to be yours. Um, and it's, you know, I was blessed because my family, um, my extended family, um, was not, a lot of them weren't great about it, but they were all pretty supportive. And my grandfather in particular, who's a very wealthy man, um, was, uh, moved enough by my story and believed me um, enough to actually fund the entire operation. And I was incredibly blessed for that. I know that's not the case for a lot of people. I know a lot of y'all out there are probably pissed off and, and pretty fucking jealous. And honestly, I would be too. Um, I am incredibly grateful and don't get me wrong for a second. I don't think this is easy for anyone. It wasn't easy for me and I had it easy. So, you know, my, my, my deepest empathies, um, to, anyone out there who's struggling trying to make this happen. If I won the lottery, I've always said this, if I won the lottery, I would immediately set up a fund to help trans people get all of the medical treatments they need. But anyway, I digress. Um, my story continues. I, I get the surgery and uh, it's October 15th, 2012. I got the surgery. So that is, we're coming up on six years. Um, and uh, I got the surgery and it was incredibly painful. And if I'm honest, I probably wasn't ready for that kind of pain. Um, I did a lot of fuckery around it. You know, I had quit smoking, but then I started smoking like pretty soon after, a lot sooner than I should have. Um, you know, I was shirking on dilating and all of the things that happen with the surgical recovery. And like one thing I was doing really well though, was taking my pain medication. Um, I took that all the time in very creative ways. Like, okay, one pill every eight hours. What if I take half a pill every four hours? Mm. 
Well, it's not how it was prescribed to you, my dear, but it worked out mathematically in my head. So I was there. I was taking these pills, and as I started to recover, I started to smoke weed again. As I was able to get mobile and started to work and, like, had money again, I was out buying weed, um, and I was getting high every single day. Every single day. And if I couldn't get high, I got drunk. And if I couldn't get both, I got one or the other. (laughs) Friends would help me. I was trying new things, trying new drugs. I wound up going to college uh, to visit my brother at the college I was going to. I tried cocaine for the first time. I tried LSD for the first time. And I tried MDMA for the first time in one weekend. Um, And I did all three of them at the same time once in the cycle. I did them all individually and then I did them all together. (laughs) That's called candy flipping. Don't do it. It makes you psychotic. Um, And uh, yeah, so I, I got really into drugs. Very, very into drugs. I'm what you call a garbage pail junkie, which is uh, a lot of drug addicts have a drug of choice. Uh, you know, someone will prefer cocaine to heroin. You know, that's they don't do heroin, they do cocaine. That's their drug of choice. For me, my drug of choice is, hey, do you want to do this drug? And I go, how did you know that was my favorite drug? It doesn't matter what it was. Um, I had never done heroin yet, uh, nor had I ever done crack yet. But it was only a fucking matter of time before someone was like, come on, it's really good. And I'd be like, okay, just this once. Because um, I was a fucking junkie. But if I had to pick a drug of choice, it was it was pot. I used pot. Like, I used pot. Some people smoke pot. Some people try pot. Some people, you know, have have a little puff every once in a while. Some people just get high. You know, some people get high every day, and that's fine. I used pot. Because when I was high, I didn't feel the pain that I felt every other day. I felt when I was high, like I was filling a void that I felt like other people didn't have. I felt like when I was high, this must be what normal is like because when I'm not high, I don't feel normal. And I thought I was fixing myself. And I was doing that with video games. I was doing that with junk food. I was doing that with, you know, sex. I was doing that with attention, performing, whatever it was, friends, you know, trying to make myself more important than I was, dreaming and never achieving. And I did that into college and I went to college and I just did more drugs. I got high every single day, every single day. I wasted money. I wasted my mom's money. I wasted my own money. I wasted my friend's money. I wasted my brother's money. I wasted everyone's money. And I just poured it into drugs. I got high every single morning, every single fucking morning. And every single day and every single night, multiple times a day, multiple times a night, multiple times a morning. I was smoking cigarettes, like, pack and a half a day. I was drinking as often as I could. I was doing cocaine whenever it was presented to me. I was doing acid whenever the opportunity arose. And I was doing all sorts of experimental weird drugs whenever that opportunity arose. I was constantly under the influence of at least one drug, if not two, if not more. And... Obviously, my grades were failing. <laughs> I, I managed to get through my first year and a half of school completely fucked, but, like, I managed to, to pass. I, I passed all my classes. I did well at some of my classes, honestly, um, because, you know, in the last week of finals, as I was putting all my final exams and papers together, I would stay up for a week straight drinking uh, Red Bull that I had crushed up, an Adderall pill, and powder the pour, poured the powder into the Red Bull, then used that to drink uh, and take a pill of another Adderall and use that to drink it down right before I ripped a line of more crushed up Adderall off of a desk. I don't know why I have heart problems these days, <laughs> but uh, that was my experience. And after two years of that, and in the second semester of my second year at college, me doing absolutely nothing but waking up in the morning smoking a bong uh, that I'd packed the night before for myself, uh, playing Skyrim all day uh, while getting high, leaving only to eat, um, if then, Uh, and going absolutely crazy, taking Adderall and being real focused and playing the shit out of Skyrim, and then also getting high and just not going to class, and I dropped out of college. 
and I dropped out of college and I went home and I got a job at a radio station uh, working the boards and I used that money uh, which was just above minimum wage to buy drugs from my drug dealer who worked at the Whole Foods literally down the road so on my break I would drive over to the Whole Foods and buy pot from this drug dealer and I would drive back to work getting high and smoking a cigarette and then going back into work and I would do that and do that and do that until one day I got so high on Halloween of 2015 that I forgot it was a Saturday and that the next day was Sunday and I had work and so I didn't show up to work there was two hours of dead air on the radio station and I called my boss and I said I'm fired aren't I and he said yes you're fired and I said all right fuck and so I went on a long drive getting high pretending I was at work and I realized what the fuck had my life become and so I threw all of my drugs out the window and I drove myself to a 12-step recovery meeting and that was November 1st 2015 and I haven't used a drug or drunk a drop of alcohol which is also a drug ever since um, I I think I accidentally took a drug that was semi-narcotic and then I got a little buzz off of it and I was like, whoops. And I also drank NyQuil um, and I didn't know there was alcohol in NyQuil until my cheeks got flushed. This was recently um, with two and a half years clean. And I was like, oh shit, okay. Uh, well, here, Charlie, hide this forever from me so I can never find it. Um, and he was like, no problem. Um, but yeah, I... This was my, this was where, where I'd wound up. Um, I got clean and I was lost. I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. And I was drifting through life, not knowing what I was going to be, what I should have done. There was one light in my life. I had one light and that was, uh, Dan Avedan. Uh, from Game Grumps, Ninja Sex Party. I've mentioned this before. Dan Avedan was a an inspiration to me um, to get clean and to pursue my dreams. I just didn't know what they were. And I, you know, in a moment of desperation, said to myself, "What? What am I gonna? What am I gonna do? What would What would Danny do? <laughs> um, like a Christ-like figure? <laughs> I hang on my wall." Um, no, I, I said, what would Danny do? What did Danny do when he had no fucking other options? When his band failed. And he went to the Upright Citizens Brigade. An improv school in New York. And that's where he met Ninja Brian and started his career. And now he's a fucking rock star. And I was like, all right. Well, fuck it. I have nothing else to do. So I went to the Upright Citizens Brigade. I took Improv 101. And I went through it and I kind of sucked. And I was like, all right, well, let me continue. So I took Improv 201. It was hard, and it kind of sucked, um, and I was like, all right, let me take sketch, two, sketch 101, and that's where I met Charlie, and I continued taking classes, but all the while, I fostered this relationship with this new friend I made, and in a lot of ways, I viewed Charlie as a savior. Um, he was the first friend, real friend I made, the first real relationship I had in recovery, the first friend I made outside of people I met in the rooms and who I didn't know before I was clean. Um, everyone else in my life knew me when I was fucked up. He was the first person I met when I was clean and he only ever knew me clean. And I clung to him because I saw him as my salvation, my way out, my ticket out. And he, you know, accepted that. And we started working together. And, you know, it was around that time that real-time fandom started. And his his career started to kick off a little bit, too. And, and I, you know, piggybacked on his success. I saw an opportunity, and I, I stuck with him. And it was, it was self-indulgent. Um, it was self-obsessed. It was self-serving. Um, but I tried to make myself of use to him to f pay back what I felt I owed him that he gave willingly 
because I still was in the mindset of a drug addict who gets something they need and then owes and owes and owes and owes. And so this relationship between Charlie and I started where we were. Uh, he was uh, an unwilling savior, and I was an unwilling, uh, and I was a uh, a um, turbulent disciple. I was a lot for him to handle, and he stuck by me. I don't know why. And he. Uh, it was a lot for me to handle it sometimes, and I stuck by him, and I don't know why. Um, a lot of people have told us we're bad for each other. Um, and there are times when I believe that. Um, and there are times when I don't. Because when we really connect, and when we really work together, there is a, there's a magic there that I've never felt working with anyone else. Um... And he has, but I haven't. And I don't think he's my ticket out of here anymore. We've since, you know, lived together and found out we're still working a lot on ourselves. But in that time, I made a lot of friends through him and outside of him, but a lot of them through him, people in the real-time fandom community. And... Through this opportunity, I was able to start a podcast, which is something I'd wanted to do since I was a child and was recording little radio shows on my tape recorder. Well, that was more <laughs> and so that was a terrible place for that to start. But um, anyway, I... Uh, I I'd always wanted to do that, and I started one with him, and it, it, it became this weird little show, and it blossomed into what it is right now, and I'm really grateful, but I don't know where it's going to go. We're going to continue making Snubdub, maybe not as often, because I'm moving on, not from the project, not from... Charlie or our relationship or anything like that. I'm not leaving this channel. I'm not leaving the projects. It's all going to still happen. We're all still friends and everything's great, but I'm realizing that in all of this, I've never learned to live with myself. I've never learned to live for myself. I was either living to stop being dysphoric. I was either living to transition, living for my family, living for, you know, the drugs, living for my band, living for school, living for this, living to hide, living to blah, 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 blah. But I never stopped to live for myself. And I have to do that. Which is why I'm recording this alone. Which is why I'm recording, you know, God, almost an hour of myself just talking just recounting my story. Not because I think it's so intensely necessary for everyone to hear it, but it's intensely necessary for me to hear it and for me to record this and say this out loud to myself. So I guess welcome to my diary. <laughs> but yeah, I'm moving on. I'm moving down south actually. Which is not going to affect our relationship, you and me, the listener. Hi. But it's going to affect my relationship with myself. I'm going to be living alone in a new place. I'm going back to school. I'm going to be studying history. I'm going to be... have to make new friends. I'm going to have to make new network down in... in, in Atlanta, um, in a new 12-step fellowship, well, same fellowship, different area, and I'm going to have to do it, and it's going to be a lot for me, but every time I think about it, I'm afraid, but for the first time in my life, I've been able to push through fear, not using it 
to drive myself or reacting in spite of it or reacting in opposition to it or whatever. Fear isn't the driving force that's operating my life right now. Faith is. Hope that I can become a better person. And I'm going to return to New Jersey. Don't you get me wrong. This state's phenomenal and I love it and it's the best one. And I'll fight you about it. You know I will. I'm from New Jersey. But I have to live somewhere else so I don't live my whole life saying I've only ever lived in one place. I want to get to know other people. I want to get to know another culture, even if it's scary, even if it's toxic, even if it's bad for me. At least then I'd know for sure. Because what if it's not, you know? What if it's surprising? What if I make an impact? What if my presence there opens people's eyes? What if I live up to what I was saying in high school, that it's easy to vilify a trans person when you've never met one? So, I'm recording this episode alone, and I might actually record more alone. Talk to people and talk about things on my mind. I don't think it's going to be a regular upload, but I think this is worth expressing. Because recording myself talking into a microphone at least gives me an opportunity to talk to myself and not and feel pressured to continue to talk. Uh, I feel like someone's listening, and that helps me get my thoughts out. When I talk to myself alone, when I get uncomfortable, it's easy for me to shut up and do something else. When I'm recording, it's harder for me to do that. (laughs) And then since I have it recorded and I make a podcast anyway, I might as well put it out there. So, I mean, like, fuck it, right? I have nothing to hide anymore. I'm an out transgender drug addict who makes no secrets about being trans or a recovering drug addict. I have nothing to lose. (laughs) My family knows. Uh, My friends know. I'm very open about everything in my life, so me putting this out online isn't going to make anything. I'm not going to run for president at some point, and if I do, hi. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But no, I'm I'm not afraid to put this out there anymore. I'm not afraid for people to know the real me. And obviously there are more details that I've left out. There are many, many, many days that I have left out. Because if we were really going to recount this, it would have taken 25 years. But what I'm trying to do right now, and what I implore you all to do, And the whole point of this whole show, as funny as it is sometimes and as absolutely goofy and ironic and bullshit as it is sometimes, the heart of this has always been for me to help myself and for you to help yourself. For all of us to work together to find out what we love about ourselves and to love it to death.